Hello and welcome to The Energy Trilemma, a podcast brought to you by BP. I'm Linda Yu, and throughout the series, I'll be speaking to some of the leading figures on the front line of the trilemma, industry experts and global CEOs who are looking to meet the challenge of energy that's reliable, affordable, and low carbon. Today, we turn our focus to the aviation sector, an industry which represents approximately 2% of human-induced greenhouse gas emissions and yet also one that is critical for global supply chains and that we rely upon for both business and pleasure. How does this strategically important sector respond to the unique challenges it faces today? Joining me to discuss these issues are Nicola Katian, Head of Sustainability and Environment at Airbus. Thank you. Very pleased to be with you today. And Willie Walsh, Director General of IATA the Trade Association for the World's Airlines. Thank you. I'm delighted to have this opportunity to talk about these issues. A warm welcome to you both. Willie, let's start with you. I want to just take a look at the commitments that have been made by the aviation sector. So last October, I know that IATA passed the resolution approved by all members to achieve net zero carbon emissions by 2050. So just tell me why this resolution is so significant for the decarbonization of the industry. Well, we believe it's very important that our industry respects the science, aligns our ambition with the goals of the Paris Agreement uh, and the ambition of uh, many countries, and also that as an organization that we show some leadership Uh, try to stimulate regional and international cooperation and build on the leadership shown by some of our airlines. So I I think it was a very significant development that you brought the airline industry together focused on this very significant goal of net zero by 2050. Nicola, let me bring you in. What does the roadmap to net zero look like in your view for the aviation sector? Are there challenges that are unique to the sector around net zero that perhaps are, say, different to, say, road transport or construction or other um, industries? Well, I would say there are four relevant aspects to the decarbonization challenge of the industry. The first one is that we're a high growth industry and to some extent the demographic growth underpins the growth that this sector has seen for many years. The second element is that we are a relatively hard to abate sector as some people will uh, qualify us because we have long lead cycles in the industry. We bring quite efficient technology but it takes us sometimes decade actually to develop those technologies. Uh, so those long lead cycles means we can't actually uh, bring more efficient products every two or three years like other industries can. The third element is we're a global industry. We need global solutions for a global industry where we have airlines operating those airplanes everywhere. And as we'll see, some of the big challenge we face is obviously around the energy ecosystem, which requires global uh, solutions. Willie, same question to you. What does the roadmap to net zero for the aviation sector look like to you? And what are some of the unique challenges that the sector faces? Well, I think Nicola covered them very well there. We've gone through a very difficult period over the past two years. But I think the most significant challenge is that we are hard to abate. We we don't have an immediate solution that can be made available to the industry. So unlike other industries, you know, we will see our proportion or the proportion of CO2 generated by our, our industry increase. So although, as you quite rightly say in the introduction, we're around 2%, as other industries do 
decarbonize, our proportion of uh, global CO2 will increase. And, and that's why it's important that we demonstrate a long-term commitment while recognizing that there will be challenges uh, along the way. But personally, I'm very confident that this challenge is one that the industry will meet. Uh, we have a good track record. And as you've heard, you know, technology will help us. But we're not betting everything on new technology, game-changing technology coming along. I think we've set out a very credible path to achieving net zero by 2050. But Willie, can I just ask you about how the current environment with the turmoil still from the coronavirus pandemic and, of course, the ongoing war in Ukraine, how do you think that will affect the sector's ability to decarbonize? Um, is there a risk that the pace will slow? Well, it's been a torrid time for airlines over the past two years. You know, this is the deepest, most prolonged crisis the industry has ever seen. In 2020, industry revenues fell by 56% versus 2019. But despite that, what has really pleased me is that the industry remains committed to addressing the environmental impact that we have. And indeed, we're seeing more and more airlines committing to uh, purchasing sustainable aviation fuel, which we think is the, you know, the main pillar on the way to achieving net zero for the industry. So despite all of the challenges, despite the huge financial impact, I'm really pleased to say that the industry remains committed. And I don't see this crisis actually slowing down that commitment. If anything, it's accelerated, uh, surprisingly, uh, but we have seen more and more airlines commit significant financial commitments to um, achieving this net zero by 2050. Nicola, let me come to you on numbers on SAF, sustainable aviation fuel. So how much lower emissions are SAF if you were to use SAF? And how much sustainable aviation fuel is actually being used today? It's essentially fuels are produced from sustainable renewable feedstock. And they're very similar in their chemistry to fossil jet fuel. Um, so eventually using sustainable aviation fuel results in a reduction of the total CO2 emissions compared to fossil jet fuel over the life cycle of the fuel. So it's essentially about the circularity of carbon. When we look at where we need to bring up sustainable aviation fuel at global level by 2050, we need to develop and scale up SAF up to 300 million tons of sustainable aviation fuel. So that gives you a sense of the magnitude and the scalability we need to reach at industry level. And so in terms of potential for reduction, current SAF actually uh, help reduce the total CO2 in their life cycle by about 80%. But when you look at synthetic fuels, you could reduce uh, the total CO2 in the life cycle of the fuel by more than 90%. Uh, so that's quite efficient actually as a way to reduce CO2. Willie, maybe I'll pose this one to you. Can the move to sustainable aviation fuel, and in the future, hydrogen, can this help with energy security as well as help lower emissions? Are SAF and hydrogen, are they subject to less global volatility? That's a great point, and you're absolutely right. I think it does uh, address energy dependence uh, or energy independence. It, it's also uh, a source of uh, new jobs. You know, these would be you know, good jobs being created, sustainable jobs, and it helps the environment. That's why it's it's such an important issue. It's a real win-win-win. Everybody wins as a result of this. And also there's, of course, the current cost of living crisis. That poses significant challenges. Willie, is there anything the aviation sector can do around affordability? 
you're right to highlight it, and it, it is a massive challenge. Um, if, if I look at uh, fuel costs as a percentage of the industry's cost base, if I take the decade between uh, 2010 and 2019, which incidentally was the most profitable in the history of the industry, our, our fuel costs were about 27%. Uh, of total costs, and that was with Brent at eighty dollars, eighty US dollars a barrel, Jet at about ninety four US dollars a barrel. Today we see Jet uh, averaging this year at about one hundred and forty five dollars a barrel. So without question, uh, the costs that the industry faces have increased significantly, principally as a result of the very significant increase in the oil price. And I just don't see how an industry that is suffering financially can do anything to absorb that. You know, I think a lot of airlines have actually done quite a, you know, an excellent job over the past two years to reduce their costs where they do have some control. But, you know, fuel costs will represent the biggest uh, element of an airline's cost base. And uh, I'm afraid there's not a lot that we'll be able to do with that in the, in the short term. Nicola, let me bring you in. Just following up on that point, are there ways that you can deliver greater efficiency in your operations to help offset the higher costs you're facing as an industry? Of course. And I think Willie alluded to the fact that obviously this is first and foremost um, an additional and incremental cost from the hike in energy prices for the end users. And the best way we can on our end obviously try to alleviate this is to provide more fuel efficient and more efficient products uh, to start with. I think we've been focusing a lot of our efforts towards achieving this over the last few years. We uh, today have uh, what I would call a a best-in-class product line that helps actually reduce the uh, fuel cost base of our airline customers by 20 to 25 percent. But we ourselves as an industry, we are actually uh, specifiers, designers and integrators of our planes can also find efficiencies in our own industrial operations and in uh, reducing actually also the energy intensity of our own process. We've actually heard from leaders and experts in other sectors um, during this podcast series that the challenge in reaching net zero isn't just about technological or financial, or some of them said those are not the main factors. It's the complexity in mobilizing a global effort. Is it the same for the aviation sector, Nicola? Yes, effectively what we tend to say when we look at our decarbonization roadmap as a sector, is that there is no silver bullet. So we need technology. We need technology at scale. We need technology that enables actually what we call zero emission tailpipe solutions. This is why we are investigating hydrogen. And hydrogen is more than even a hydrogen platform. It's a full ecosystem that needs to be developed uh, over time. We need technology to develop meaningful, sustainable aviation fuel pathways. We need technology also to fly our airplanes more efficiently. That's why we are also pioneering with a fellow fly approach, trying to uh, mimic uh, the formation flights of birds, for instance, because we can see that there is still improvements in terms of air traffic management, flight operations that our customers can benefit from. But clearly, the big challenge around the energy ecosystem is one that does not just simply engage the sector, but I would say uh, the whole humanity to some extent. And all of this, of course, requires significant uh, financial investment. And uh, I think one that even the industry itself uh, cannot bear for itself. We need to massively redirect actually financing flows towards a low carbon economy. I truly believe that our sector has the potential to decarbonize. That's what we are committed on. I think Willie made a very important statement. We are taking a science-based approach to our decarbonization plan. There are means. We are not dependent on fossil fuel, but we need to develop technology to be able to achieve it. 
And uh, if we can sort of align planets, as we would say, between the financial industry, our industry, and many other actors, innovation, uh, startups, I think uh, we have the key and recipe to success. Lily, let me bring you in on the same question, obviously, from your perch, um, looking at the industry as a whole. Um, how important do you think the global effort, how complex um, is it and how important is it? It's always complex when you're dealing with global effort or global industries. But I, I think it's very important, again, to recognize that the airline industry uh, and the wider aviation community has already committed to net zero by 2050. So that's the first hurdle cleared. I think we need to mobilize governments. Efficiency in the system has to be addressed right uh, you know, across the system. And when we look at air traffic control, it's well recognized that uh, the system in place today, particularly in Europe, is very inefficient. Uh, we know that we could reduce CO2 from aviation in Europe by 10 to 12 percent if we introduce the so-called single European sky, which has been debated for many, many years. There's no technological impediment to that. It's a political impediment that we have to clear. Well, you just tell us what is the single European sky? So in, in Europe, we have a fragmented uh, system of air traffic control providers right across Europe. We still have these, if you like, borders in the air, which makes the system very inefficient. It forces airlines to operate uh, along uh, routings that have been in place for 40, 50 years. We don't need that. We can fly at the most efficient uh, altitude flight levels for the aircraft. What's holding that up is... You know, the political will to uh, address this, it, it's often described as, you know, sovereignty in the air. And, and, and quite honestly, with the crisis that we face with the environment, I think it's unacceptable that uh, governments in Europe don't make significant progress. It would save anywhere between 10 and 12 percent of the CO2 emitted by aircraft over Europe. So, uh, you know, there are steps that we need to take, but I think there are a lot of things that uh, we can do to make the system more efficient. It does require political will. Uh, it, you don't need to mobilize the industry around these issues. We're ready. In fact, uh, you know, we're demanding this change. Uh, so it is important that we take advantage of all of the opportunities that exist today and not just wait for technological developments, which without question, will come in the next few years. You mentioned there um, new technology. So, Nicola, how can you accelerate progress in the development and the adoption of new technologies? Well, the best way actually within the next decade or so is actually to progressively accelerate the transition of the fleet to best-in-class generation aircraft, understanding that actually the cost of flying those aircraft and the energy efficiency will become critical uh, for airline customers. There's a basket of um, technical capabilities that we're looking at, electrification, uh, hybridification. So um, we tested actually on our hand electric aircraft. We know that there are limitations with battery concepts in terms of the ratio of energy intensity and weight on, on, on the aircraft. We are working on hydrogen and we believe that hydrogen has a role to play. We will have actually a first demonstrator of hydrogen propelling system uh, on board an A380 um, in the second half of this decade. Um, we see a lot of potential in terms of aerodynamics and we're working on new advanced wings concept uh, with extra performance. So many technology bricks that we're looking at in terms of aerodynamics, engine performance, but also looking at the sort of energy carrier, so hydrogen and the sustainable aviation fuel. 
what's important to know is that all aircraft that are flying today and all the aircraft uh, that we have in our product lines already uh, certified to fly with 50% sustainable aviation fuel, and we're working on uh, making our product line and future products compatible with up to 100% sustainable aviation fuel. That's an important brick as well, because those aircraft that uh, we will be delivering towards the end of this decade will still be flying in uh, in 20 years' time afterwards, and, and hopefully they will be operated uh, with uh, sustainable aviation fuel blends in excess of the 50%, which is the current capacity. Can I come in on this one? Um, when we look at where CO2 is produced in aviation, about 80% of the CO2 that the industry produces comes from flights of greater than 1,500 kilometers, where, uh, given everything that Nicola has just said, you know, we're not going to see a, a short-term solution through electric or hybrid electric. Uh, it's going to be some time, uh, if indeed we ever see it, where uh, we can see a solution that would enable us to have aircraft that could fly over those distances with the you know, high volumes of passengers that would be required. So, um, you know, the solution, uh, it will be part of the solution, uh, but it, it's not the, uh, you know, the, the, the magic bullet. I think the industry uh, needs to continue to stimulate demand and production of sustainable aviation fuels. And in fact, one of the, if you like, the side benefits of the crisis we've just gone through is a lot of the older generation aircraft have been retired early. Uh, these are aircraft that would have been operating probably for the next five years, but given the severe downturn in demand, they were retired and will not come back into service. So we will see a step change in the efficiency of the fleets that were operating versus what was operated back in 2019. So that's a, a positive development. Uh, airlines want to use more sustainable aviation fuel. In fact, we used every single drop of sustainable aviation fuel that was available to us in 2021, and we'll do the same this year. Uh, we need to see um, governments incentivize production of the fuel. It is very expensive. Uh, and despite the uh, increase in costs, um, airlines are still committing to, to purchase sustainable aviation fuel. It, it represents about a a factor of three versus jet kerosene that we're using today. So it's, it's, it's very significant when you look at it in terms of cost, but we're still seeing low volumes. Now, the cost of sustainable aviation fuel should reduce as we see production scaled up and get more efficiencies of scale. The technology that uh, Nicholas had talked about is fascinating and uh, it's very encouraging, particularly in the areas of hydrogen. But he's quite right to highlight the advantage of sustainable aviation fuel and that it can be used in existing aircraft. And importantly, it can be used with the existing infrastructure at airports. With things like hydrogen, we're going to have to develop a whole new set of infrastructure to ensure that we can have hydrogen available at airports. And, and that will incur very significant cost as well. So uh, I think hydrogen is definitely uh, something that uh, excites the industry, but we are looking at that maybe for part of the solution beyond 2050 rather than, you know, the uh, change that we require to get to net zero in, in 2050. Willie, I want you to look ahead as to what the aviation sector could look like in 2050. I think I heard you say that hydrogen is not going to be a uh, big part of the solution until after that point. 
I think that's very fair, um, but we have to crack the nut of how do we produce green hydrogen. There's no point in trying to convince people that we can achieve zero emissions if there's uh, significant energy being used to create the hydrogen. So that's why we haven't uh, used hydrogen on our pathway. It will come into play towards you know, the uh, 2040 to 2050 period, but in, in small scale. Very important, therefore, that we look at technology that is proven and we know can be available, hence the reason we've put a much greater focus on sustainable aviation fuel. We now need a government framework that will support the production. And I think the US actually has approached this in a much better way than the EU, uh, incentivizing production rather than trying to force people to buy a product that doesn't exist. So you don't need to convince airlines to buy sustainable aviation fuel. What you need to do is make sustainable aviation fuel available to airlines to purchase. And, and I think then as we go uh, closer to 2040, 2050, we will see hydrogen come uh, more into play. Uh, I would like to think that at that stage, we'll understand how we can create sufficient quantities of green hydrogen. And that's why I say, I think beyond 2050, when we're looking at zero emissions rather than net zero, I think that's where hydrogen is going to play a, a very big part. But but it's important, I think, for the industry to have a credible pathway to net zero. And trying to convince those who are skeptical of our industry that this will all be achieved through some magic technological development I think would be the wrong thing to do. Nicola, just on that point, what support would you like to see the aviation sector um, receive from government so that you can decarbonize, given all the challenges that we've discussed? Well, I think we are uh, very much engaged uh, at European level, at US level, but at also international level. And the good thing is we have a UN body, which is called uh, ICAO, which is helping us also align and join forces at government level. And that's what we are very much thriving on. We need support in the form of appropriate regulation that supports actually the scalability of the right sustainable aviation fuel pathways. Uh, we need support in the form of incentivizing, obviously, uh, uh, measures. We need to uh, reward actually best practices and not penalize actually an entire industry which has the potential uh, to converge. We also need a level playing field. Uh, I think that's probably one of the area that we struggle. If you remember at the beginning, I was saying we are a global industry. And unfortunately, at this stage, we do not yet see actually aligned views and goals at uh, international and government level. So uh, we will have to work also with uh, some uh, governments and states who probably have a different timeline in terms of how they envisage their own net zero plan. Willie, final word to you. I suspect you have a whole list of things that you would like to see. So you fire away. <laughs> well, I think the policy framework is, is very important. And in the same way as, you know, governments provided incentives to decarbonize road transport or the move to clean energy, I think it's critical that we get the policy framework right. Uh, this is an industry that, uh, as you said in your opening remarks, is very important from a global economic point of view. Uh, you know, it's often portrayed as just facilitating people going on their holidays. It's not that. It facilitates trade. It, uh, it facilitates absolutely critical meetings. And as we've seen through this pandemic, it was critical in terms of providing uh, equipment, medical equipment, um, personal protective equipment that, that couldn't have 
been provided at speed to the uh, countries um, that require them. But getting a policy framework which uh, incentivizes the transition rather than penalizes the industry, because taxation will not in any way help to uh, decarbonize the industry. Taxation will take money away from the industry that can be best spent uh, on new technology, on uh, buying sustainable aviation fuel, on investing in additional research and development. Uh, because unfortunately, what we've seen right up to today is that a, not a single penny, not a single cent of environmental taxes that have been taken from the airline industry have gone to uh, provide any incentive uh, to improve the environmental performance. So for me, it's, it's all about aligning uh, governments, uh, getting the policy framework right. And I'm very confident that the, uh, you know, the leadership shown by the industry saying we are committed to net zero should help politicians to align in terms of their aspirational goals for aviation. So I'm very optimistic. Uh, I think there is an opportunity for us over the next two, three, four, five years to get that policy framework right and set us in the uh, right direction on the right path to uh, net zero in 2050. And then beyond that, I think we should be uh, even more ambitious and, and talk about zero emission aircraft, which I, I, I think is definitely on the horizon. Final question to you both. By 2050, what would the flying experience be like for the consumer? It's going to be excellent. Yeah. So uh, by then, I think we'll have sorted out the challenges of air traffic control within Europe. Um, the aircraft will be more efficient. They will be quieter. Uh, I, I'm very, very positive about the fact that we will have uh, achieved net zero. And I think we will be on the path to uh, zero emissions. So people can continue to fly with confidence that the impact that we're having on the environment will be addressed and that going forward, you can continue to um, you look forward to the beauty of air travel, to the advantages of air travel, without feeling guilty about the environmental impact that it has. And perhaps on my end, Linda, we see also some more disruptive technologies. So what about uh, uh, blended wing bodies, hydrogen-powered airplanes? Uh, probably it will be a mixture of those more conventional, yet uh, relying on sustainable aviation fuel versus more disruptive technologies. What I'm hopeful for, in a sense, is that probably more people get access to travel in the future. Maybe some of the people will travel less, but more people will travel and effectively, we have brought actually um, the uh, benefit of traveling and connecting to more citizens across the world in a much more democratic way, in a sense, without harming the planet. That's pretty much our proposed line. A huge thank you to my guest today, Nicola Katian, Head of Sustainability and Environment at Airbus, and Willie Walsh, Director General of IATA, the Trade Association for the World's Airlines. There have been some fascinating points made in our discussion today. A key takeaway for me is the fact that aviation is a challenging sector to decarbonize, but despite this, the industry is doing a lot to get to net zero. As a priority, it's looking to scale up the use of sustainable fuels in use as well as improve the efficiency of older aircrafts. And looking further ahead, it's clear that hydrogen-powered aircraft could play a part and ultimately, switching to new fuels will improve energy security, one of the key aspects of the trilemma. 
Thank you again to my guests. I'm Linda Yu, the host of this podcast brought to you by BP. Thank you for listening.